Good morning again. <laughs> so good to see you guys. We have a lot going on. Um, the G3 group signups, you want to make sure you get involved in one of those. A great way to connect with people, stay accountable, grow deeper in your faith um, throughout the, the, the spring and throughout this year. It's just a, a great thing to be part of. I was really encouraged last weekend when we had our kickoff for our discipleship groups. Uh, a couple hundred of you came out to be part of one of those. If you're still looking at wanting to be involved in our monthly discipleship group meetings with men and women, uh, you can still get involved. Not too late to start uh, join us, joining us with that book, and you can jump in at any time. So uh, feel free to, to sign up for that as well. Um, we have some, a few 2022 calendars left in the lobby. You can grab one of those on your way out if you'd like to use one of those, uh, some, just some beautiful pictures and scriptures uh, for your yearly calendar. Okay, we're going to just talk real quickly about one thing, well, a couple things, uh, before we dive into our study this morning. Um, how many of you guys know that there's a, a game today? Uh, anyone, anyone excited about that? It's a, Yeah, uh, some of you think I, I just poo-poo on football. No, I'm excited about this game too, especially, especially at, uh, after that 13 seconds last weekend. That was something else, I tell you what. Um, so yeah, uh, should be, a, uh, should be a, good, a good game. How many of you know that there's, a, there's an election coming up? Where's all the cheering? I, what's... Not that exciting about that? We do, you guys. We have an election coming up for our local uh, city council. And uh, some people have uh, suggested and, and sometimes think that these elections don't really matter and these people can't really do much. Uh, that's not true. Uh, you're, you, the whole council is, is getting overhauled. So next four years of decisions from something as small as as the uh, potholes in our streets as you drive down to St. Joe Road uh, to uh, things that are far more serious. Now, I'm not going to spend time giving you my personal opinions about fiscal policies and where money should go first and second and third. Um, that's not really my place, but I do want to encourage you as a church um, to do your homework and do your research about uh, who's running for office and how you should vote uh, this coming election. So we have February 8th is our primary. Uh, last election, last local election cycle, 6,000 people in St. Joseph uh, voted in the primary election. Actually, so few people voted that, that one council member actually made it in, in the primary without even having to go through the general election. Uh, there's a policy in our, in our city that if you get over 50% of the vote in the primary of the total number, you're in, no matter what. And, and so this matters. Um, it's not all that matters. Don't hear me wrong. It's something that matters. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if we have been given the privilege and opportunity to use our voice and our vote to ensure a community that is moral, ethical, prosperous for our future generations, it is something that should matter to us as the church. It's something that should be important to us as Christians. And so I have been on a, 
I've been on a search because I'm finding out all sorts of things. Uh, like, I didn't know that our city has implemented a um, human, uh, human, rights, a human rights board. And you think, what's wrong with a human rights council? Uh, it depends on what your agenda is. Uh, looking over their, their board meeting minutes, I find out that their agenda includes wanting to pass this uh, resolution in our city against what they call conversion therapy. In other words, if you say I'm a homosexual or I'm a transsexual or I'm a bisexual, uh, and we, we, we say, well, we want to help you because we don't think that's what God designed you to be, and if you want help, we'll help you and we'll point you into a direction where you can get on the path that the Lord wants you to be, that, that we can't do that as Christians. Um, I find out that their agenda is to have our buildings in downtown painted with rainbow murals saying that we welcome the LGBTQ community as a safe haven. That, Josh, are you, you hate gay people? Don't be silly. How can I hate anyone? I'm a sinner saved by grace. What I hate is, what I hate is Satan ripping people off and destroying people's lives by lying to them and deceiving them about who they are and who God created them to be. And what I'm sickened by is a growing society that calls evil good and good evil. And if you think that we are beyond that happening in our community, you need to think again. I was in a conservative community in Northern California, and my five-year-old niece in her kindergarten class had her teacher read her a book about the gay bunny rabbit who wanted to get married, but that evil government wouldn't let them. And how horrible it is, you know, five years old. Far worse is happening in certain places in our country. And there is an agenda even in our own backyard around these topics and around these issues. These are biblical issues. These are issues that God cares about. And so you need to be informed. You need to use your voice and your vote uh, to do your best to, um, to the, the Bible says, when the righteous rule, it's a, it's a good thing. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Um, and so I have found it very difficult to find any information anywhere <laughs> about this uh, election, about who's running. So we said we will make our own website. So you can go to votesaintjoe.com. We have built an entire website, and here's where you can find the information about election dates, polling places, and you can also find uh, a full rundown on all the candidates running for every district, um, mayor, uh, municipal judge. We've sent a group of people in our church on their own accord because they care. They, sent, they made and sent out questionnaires to every candidate. We haven't got a response from everyone, but we've done our best to, to give certain um, uh, thoughts and ratings. All the questions, you can see, uh, do you support policies that would permit males and females to sh same, share the same public restroom, showers, locker room based on their self-identified gender, gender instead of natural-born gender? I support trans-inclusive policies, um, and that's Whitney Lanning. Josh, you can't tell me who to vote for or who not to vote for. No, you can do what you want, but that doesn't mean I can't tell you. <laughs> I can tell you um, because God's given me the responsibility to tell you, regardless of who says I can or I can't. Uh, 
you, you, there are people with agendas, and, and we live in a world that you, someone will vote for someone just because they're a person of color, just because they're a female, and well, we need, more, we need to be more inclusive, and, we, and they'll vote emotionally, based even on someone's name, uh, and what it sounds like, rather than what they stand for and what their policies are. And so we want you to be informed, uh, share this around, there's some uh, flyers you can pick up on your way out. And we'd love for you to just use that as a resource. There are also some biblical resources there as well that you can have access to. So you can pick up one of those, and it has the website. Okay, to the things of the Word. We are in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and stand with me as we look and read God's Word. We're going to be covering the whole chapter today, a very powerful transition where the author is going to address the priesthood of Jesus Christ as our high priest before God. I will read the odd-numbered verses. If you would join together on the even-numbered verses, we're going to come to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Mel, Mel who? We'll just call him Mel from here on out, so you guys can, uh, can be okay with that. Who in the days of his flesh... When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his godly fear. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Lord, we thank you for your word today to us. 
some powerful truths, applications that lie therein, and we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to help our minds tune in, to help our ears to be open to hear what the Spirit says, and to help our hearts receive those spiritually implanted seeds that are able to save our soul, break away the hardness of heart, and make us more like Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, A number of years ago, I was in Colorado speaking at a church, and the weather started to get kind of bad while I was there. And so on my flight back home, I remember getting on the plane, it started to sleet and to snow uh, quite a bit, and we pull out of the terminal, being taxied toward the runway, and then we just stop. And we're sitting there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And finally, the captain gets on the radio and says, we're experiencing mechanic, mechanical failures. I am not, I'm not comfortable with taking this plane up. We're going to go back and let you guys off. No more than five minutes after he said that, we were at the end of the runway. Engines blaring, speeding down that thing full, full speed. And right before we took off, the captain said, Oh, well, the issues have been taken care of. We're going to take off now. And I'm thinking, I am not at peace with this. You just told me that we have mechanical errors, and you just told me you're not comfortable flying in the plane, and now we're taking off? Five minutes after you, after you tell me? You know, when I'm going 40,000 feet in the air in a tin can, I want to have the confidence that the person who's getting me there is going to get me there. That they have the confidence that the vehicle they're taking me in is going to uh, get me to the desired destination. I find it interesting that the Bible talks about Jesus as the captain of our salvation, the author and the finisher of our faith, the, the one who pilots the ship that gets us to the desired destination of eternal life. And for the Jewish audience that Paul is writing to in the book of Hebrews. You have to remember that they have left the faith of the old covenant, the sacrificial system, the law of Moses, in order to embrace Jesus as their promised Messiah. And they knew through the prophetic word that Jesus would be and is the rightful king over Israel. That Jesus was of the tribe of the Lion of Judah, the kingly tribe. And so Jesus would have a a viable claim on the throne of David. He was that promised Messiah. But the question they would be challenged with by their Jewish believers, their their family, their friends, their community, is okay, you've, you've, you've adopted Jesus as your Messiah. But you've left the priesthood. You've left the sacrificial system. So Jesus might be your king, but who's going to be your high priest? Who's going to do the ministry in the temple of offering the sacrifice? What is your sacrifice going to be if you've abandoned those things? Well, that's a good question. Many of them hadn't thought through what that looked like. And so Paul brings to the table the fact that they need not worry or be concerned 
Because Jesus himself is not only the rightful king, but Jesus is the ultimate and eternal high priest, and Jesus himself is the sacrificial lamb. Everything you need that you thought you might have through the many-tiered religious system of Judaism, you now have in the person of Jesus Christ. And unlike a system of religion that might break down in the middle of the air and take you down a crash course, Jesus is going to get you to your desired destination. And so as we talk about this, let's establish first some thoughts about the priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was established by God under the old legal covenant, the law that came down from Mount Sinai, to mediate the things, the, the, the terms, so to speak, of that covenant. He called Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi, Levi to be priests, that is, mediators between mankind, God's people, and God in the area of sacrifice and ministry. The high priest was a unique position. The high priest was the man who was uh, in authority over the other priestly positions. Now, the high priest could do any of the priestly tasks, but there were certain unique tasks and responsibilities that the high priest had that no one else could do. A couple of them being very important to our passage today. Number one, only the high priest was qualified on the annual day of atonement the day where sacrifices would be made for the sins of the entire camp, the people of God, the high priest alone was able to, once a year, having made sacrifices both for himself first and the people, to enter into the holy place of that tabernacle or the temple. Behind the veil, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant, covenant sat where the mercy seat was laid, that place where the presence of God would literally meet the law and the covenant was, was, was established right in that space. And the high priest alone would go in there and would sprinkle, and we're going to talk about this more in the next few chapters, sprinkle the blood of the unblemished sacrifice upon the mercy seat of the altar to make atonement for the sins of the people. And of course, because the blood of animals is not sufficient to take away sins or to erase sins. It would have to be repeated year after year after year after year after year. So that was one unique responsibility, that the high priest's job was to go before the presence of God and, or, uh, and make or, or lay before God the sacrifice for sin. The second unique tool should I say, that the high priest had. And I'm going to go on a bit of a rabbit trail, but this morning this, this came to my mind as I was driving to church, and I was like, this is really cool. I said it for a service, and some people thought it was cool, and other people looked at me like, what on earth are you talking about? So we'll see. But the high priest wore this um, garment, right, the ephod. And on the ephod was a breastplate of judgment. The breastplate of judgment had 12 stones that the high priest would wear. Those 12 stones were precious stones, all unique within themselves. And on each stone was inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was called the breastplate of, of, of judgment in that the high priest would wear it into the Holy of Holies close to his heart, the Bible says, to be a memorial of God's people before God's presence. 
Now, underneath, or somehow woven into the breastplate of judgment, were two items called the Urim and the Thummim. Can you guys say that with me? Urim and Thummim. Those are not names you want to name your kids. Those are um, unique Hebrew words. What were the Urim and the Thummim? We don't know for sure. Some people think they were two stones of different color. But the words indicate a powerful truth. Umum, the word umum, the root in the, in the Hebrew, means lights or brightness or the shining forth of a fire or a glory, right? Brightness, something that is bright and shining. The thumum, that word in the Hebrew root, actually means uh, fullness, completion, uh, usually most scholars believe referring to the fullness of God's word, his truth. And the umum and the thumum, the uh, urum, you know what I'm saying. These two items were used in multiple ways to determine and discern God's will, God's word, God's truth. The idea that the Bible says in Exodus 28 that the priest would have to wear them up against his chest so that he could carry the judgment of God's people close to his heart in the presence of God. The idea that God's perfect light and the fullness of his truth together revealed what was in the darkness, revealed the truth, exposed the reality. This is what we think of when, the, when we talked about last time we were together. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But when I think about these two things in relationship to Jesus being the ultimate high priest, I'm reminded of Hebrews 1, chapter 1. When I studied these words, immediately Hebrews chapter 1 came to my mind where we studied in verse 1, uh, verse 3 of chapter 1. Speaking of Jesus, the author there writes, Jesus, who being in the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person, Upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here the author says, Jesus is the brightness, the light, the shining glory of God. And he is the express image. Well, what is the express image of God? Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 tells us, For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness or completeness should dwell. The Godhead bodily. So, Jesus is the Urim. He's the brightness, the express brightness of the glory of God and his truth. He is the Thummim in that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And it is through Christ that the, that the judgment passes upon God's people. And he holds all of it close to his heart in the presence of God. I think that's stinking cool. I don't know. Uh, when I, I mean, think about John chapter one again. I, I, I use this verse frequently. It's good. Memorize it. Think of it in these terms. We know that John told us that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. In verse four, John says, in Christ, in the word, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. The Urim, the light, the brightness. 
In verse 14, he continues, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was of uh, he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Listen, and of his fullness, the thumen, we have all received grace for grace. And then he closes it, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Christ. You see, this is, the people who, who, who have this book and they say it's just a man-made invention of human thought haven't done their homework. You can't make this stuff up. It's incredible. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was pointing to. Now for us Gentiles, the concept of priesthood is a bit foreign to us. However, it really isn't. When you look at religion today, people are still trying to find some sort of priest to help them mediate their relationship with God. Many of our, our Roman Catholic friends, and I'm not trying to be critical of, of those in the Roman Catholic Church that believe in Jesus and trust him for their salvation, uh, but, the, but the, the Roman Catholic priesthood, in my opinion, is, it tramples a bit on the reality of the priesthood of Jesus being enough and sufficient. Being absolved of sins, penance, confessionals, somehow that the priest has a higher position to, uh, to somehow get you access to God. And maybe if you really want to be in favor with God, you can, you can talk to the saints and you can pray to the dead saints and maybe they can get a, a good word in for you. My friend, no, no, no insult intended at all, but, but listen, the biblical truth of the matter is if you need to be forgiven of your sin and you need access straight into the throne room of God, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one you need to go through, the only one you need to talk to. He alone has made the work, finished the work, completed the work of salvation on our behalf. And so chapter 5 explains to us the qualities and the characteristics of the priestly office of Jesus. And it's tremendously comforting. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at five descript uh, descriptions of the high priesthood of Jesus this morning. Number one, verses one and two tell us that the priesthood of Jesus is marked by compassion. It's marked by compassion. Verse one again says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. The first requirement of the high priest is that he had to be fully human. Why? Because only a human who goes through what humans go through can have compassion and empathy for the people that they're representing before God. You see, the high priesthood was never a position to create a holier-than-thou mentality. The high priest was, if anyone knew that when he went before the presence of God, he went as uh, someone who was representing a people that were full of weakness. It was a humbling thing. And that common struggle was the birthplace of compassion and empathy from the priest to the people. When you feel what someone else is feeling, your heart goes out to them. 
In the same way, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus willingly took on human flesh, being in the fullness of God, the person of God, eternally in the heavens. Jesus came down, clothed himself in humanity, and subjected himself to pain, suffering, difficulty, betrayal. He was hungry. He was tired. He experienced thirst. And all of it he did so willingly. Why? So that in our weakness, when we are going through struggles and temptations and frustrations in life, that we can look to a God who knows exactly what we've gone through, yet was without sin. You see, Jesus resisted where we gave in. Jesus had victory where we failed. And so when we are struggling, Jesus knows our struggle, but he also knows how to get us through it. He knows how to give us the victory over the things we struggle with where we're lost. See, Jesus has compassion on us because he understands what it's like to be fully human. I know it's a mystery to us. It's a, it is beyond human comprehension. But Jesus has walked in my shoes. He's been where I have been. And regarding my sin, and I've said this before, regarding my failures, Jesus even understands that. Why? Not because he did anything. He didn't do anything. But when he died on the cross, everything that I did, he absorbed into himself. So he gets it. He understands. He is a compassionate high priest. You might want to circle that word compassion. Some of your translations might say gentle, that he deals with us gently. The word in the Greek for compassion is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. It's a very unique Greek word. It means to be controlled in one's emotional response towards another. Maybe I can put it in terms that, that, that you guys will understand a little more clearly. For parents in the room, grandparents, those of you who have raised kids, uh, not by raise of hands, how many of you have ever lost your temper? You know, you know what I'm saying? No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're abusive. Or, you know, I, I, what I'm saying is you had that moment where the limit was crossed. You love your kid, and it was like, I know you get that from me, but that's not the point right now. <laughs> I'm so frustrated. Are you listening? Are you, and, we, and, and for a moment, we lose it. We discipline out of anger. We do something, you know, we say something we regret, and we, we, we offer some hurt up. We get frustrated. What, what is that saying? We don't have a controlled emotional response towards those who are walking questionably. Listen very carefully. This might sound too good to be true, but you need to know this about Jesus. If you are trusting implicitly, completely, in Jesus Christ and the work he has done to make you right and holy before God, if you are in Christ by faith, Jesus will never lose his temper with you. He knows exactly how you feel, what you're going through. Josh, you don't know what I did the other day. I'm a Christian. I followed you. I had this thought. I said this thing. I did this thing. I'm so, I'm so ashamed. God will never forgive me. I'm... Jesus isn't mad at you. 
God is not waiting for an opportunity, looking with a spotlight at his children, saying, I can't wait till one of you screw up so I can take you out to the shed (laughs) and shame you and embarrass you and take out all my wrath and my anger on you. Friends, the wrath and the anger of God towards sin, which does exist in Israel, was completely already absorbed by Jesus on the cross towards you. He's not angry with you. Well, then why does he discipline you? Because he loves you. A compassionate father who empathizes with the struggle of his sons and his daughters, who wants the best for them, who doesn't want to see sin or bad decisions destroy their life, will discipline their children, not because they're angry with them, but because they want better for them. If God allows suffering in your life, if he allows you to go through things that you don't want to go through, it's for the purpose of dragging things out of you that are actually destroying you because of his compassion. His mercy, his love, his acceptance of you. He loves you. There's nothing you could do today that will make him love you any less or any more when you are trusting in Jesus. Salvation is not about merit that you bring to the table. It's about what Jesus has done on your behalf. Jesus is a compassionate high priest. He's merciful. And he's a good model for every father and every mother (laughs) in our imperfection. Speaking about that perfection, the second quality of Jesus' high priestly role is that it's marked by perfection. It's marked by perfection. Hebrews 5.3 indicates that the human high priest had a, a deadly flaw. Verse 3, because of this he is required, as for the people, but also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. So not only did the human high priest have to represent the people, he had to represent himself because he was a people. He was a failure. He was a sinner. He needed forgiveness too, that that, that human high priest, which created a, a real problem for the people when there was this gap between them and God. The human high priest could never fully meet the requirements of the righteous God that he had to mediate between But the Bible makes it clear. Jesus, as high priest, never knew any sin himself. A verse I've memorized, and it still is a mystery to me every time I read it. I've tried to find in my years of ministry adequate adequate ways to try to um, explain it, and I still can't. 1 Corinthians 5.21. Very profound truth. Paul writes... He, that is the Father, made him, that is the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was a perfect high priest in that he knew no sin. He did not have to offer the sacrifice of sin for himself. And yet, The perfect son of God took on my imperfection in order to understand the strength of sin without ever compromising his own holiness or breaking his own standards. He saw the horrific thoughts I thought. He experienced the curse of all my wicked deeds and actions. He felt the alienation that my sin caused from the Father, not just for one of us, but for all of us. 
which makes him actually the only high priest that's qualified to represent us before the presence of God. I thank God, I thank Jesus for his perfection because without it, I'd be standing on my own and that would be bad news. The third quality of Jesus' high priesthood is that it's marked by humility. The Son of God came the first time as a, in, in, a, in a form of a servant, in a, in a humble form. Verse 4 continues, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest. But it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. An incredible declaration of God here. And here is the thought. The position of priest was such a high and great responsibility. But it was not a position that someone could just come and take it because they wanted it. Some might have asked, well, what qualifies Jesus to be the high priest? He's not of the line of Aaron. He's not of the tribe of Levi. What qualifies Jesus to be the high priest? And the author here is telling us that there is a calling that trumps pedigree and bloodlines, and it's the call and the will of God. Jesus didn't hijack the priesthood. God chose him from before the foundation of the earth to be the high priest for humanity. That means his position is secure in the will of God. You know, there's a history of people in the Old Testament that tried to take priest, priestly duties onto themselves without being called to it, and it never ended well for them. First Samuel 13, Saul was told, wait, don't offer sacrifices. But he got impatient and in a hurry, and he made sacrifices and sacrifices, performing that priestly duty, and God declared, your kingdom is gone, taking it from you. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah led a rebellion against the priesthood. Korah was like, hey, we can all be priests. What's so special about the Levites? What's so special about Aaron? We can all be priests. And God said, no, you can't. And he opened up a big hole in the ground and swallowed them up into the earth. <laughs> Second Chronicles 26, King Uzziah went beyond, thought, you know, I'm, I'm, it's not enough for me to just be king. I'm going to go perform some priestly duties as well. And the minute he took upon himself a priestly duty and crossed the line, the Lord gave him leprosy. You don't hijack the priesthood. God gives it. And notice the reference that Paul uses, Psalm chapter 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That word begotten is important because it's used in Acts chapter 13 where Paul uses the same prophetic word from Psalm chapter 2 to speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ was not only begotten as a baby, begotten meaning God's unique son, not born, not created, but he was the, the Bible says, the first begotten of the dead, the firstborn over the dead, in that he rose from the dead. So today I have begotten you, God saying, I, I brought you into the earth, I raised you from the dead to be the high priest forever according to the will of God. And I love the idea of this because it speaks of the humility of Jesus to be obedient to the calling and the will of God. 
the Father. Now, this is, this is quite a sidetrack, but it hit me, and I don't know who it might be applicable for. But I think this is still a good principle for people who have the ambition to be involved in ministry today. Man does not make a pastor. Now, the role of pastor and priest, two different, completely different things. You know that. God, only God can call a person to be in a place of ministry. I think we've gone wrong a little bit today in making it sound like if you want to be a pastor, all you got to do is go through seminary, get involved in a denomination, get a piece of paper with your name on it that says pastor, get ordained, and you can be a pastor. You can't be a pastor with a piece of paper. That requires a calling of God. And the calling of God can never produce pride in a person, but rather humility, as it did with, the, with Christ. Notice here in verse 6, he introduces a, another character. As he also says in another place, now where he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever, circle the word forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So not only are you a priest according to the will and call of God and humility, but you're a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Mel is a guy we're going to save until chapter 7, all right? Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek, and so we're going to dive in deeply to Melchizedek then. But in short, Paul is establishing here that there is a priestly order that goes before the order of Aaron, prior to the giving of the law, in a priest that we see very briefly snapshot of in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, who had no beginning and no end and no origin, and he becomes the picture of the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Melchizedek would serve as a symbol of the priesthood of Jesus apart from the law as the better priesthood a priesthood that is eternal and not temporal. But notice this word forever. I love this, that you are a priest forever. Every two to four years or so, as we are about to experience in our nation, power shifts, doesn't it? Sometimes we we get all excited because Bad policies get written out or overridden by, by a decent administration. And then, and then sometimes we feel in despair and we get frustrated because uh, policies are written in that are just unbelievable. And we go through ups and downs. And fr- Here's some good news. Jesus reigns forever. No one is going to rewrite the policies of Christ. No one will cancel out his sacrifice. No one will overstep his authority. No one will reverse his salvation. Nothing can separate us from his love. Forever Christ will see to it that the new covenant covers all those who trust in him. And there's nothing anything or anyone can do about it. And I I think that's tremendously great news. That he is a priest forever. Well, the fourth mark of Christ's high priesthood is that it is marked by obedience. It is marked by obedience. Verse 7 continues. Who in the days of his flesh, 
That is speaking of the incarnation in the days when Christ was in the flesh. When he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Okay, a little quiz. What event is the author referring to when he talks about Jesus offering vehement cries and prayers with tears to God? Does anyone, can anyone guess what event he's talking about? When did Jesus offer vehement cries and prayers with tears to God? That's right, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what he's talking, he's, he's bringing us to a focal point. The Garden of Gethsemane, where our great high priest, before the cross, right before he was betrayed, you remember the story, he went up and he took Peter, James, and John and said, please pray with me, and they kept falling asleep. <laughs> and three times Jesus went before the Father. He fell down on his knees, and the Bible says he was in such distress that he was sweating drops of blood. And he would cry out to the Father, Father, if there be any way for this cup to pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, that is in, in his humanity, not my will, but thine be done. He found a place of complete surrender, right? I think we underestimate the power of that moment. Gethsemane means olive press. And if, uh, how many of you have been to Israel? Raise your hands. Okay, we got to go. We got to go. When you are in Israel, you can go to the Garden of Gethsemane. No one, it's not a mystery as to where this place is. Right over the brook Kidron, which separates the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane from the city. You can go sit under the, these ancient olive trees and go to the, the very locations, not exactly, but right in the same area Jesus would have been on his knees praying to his father. And he was in that great, wine, great press of God, right? The olive press that would squeeze out the oil, right? Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane was in the press of God. But here's the thing about that location. When you're in Israel, you look across that valley when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and you see this gate, okay? That's called the Golden Gate. Not, not associated with San Francisco in any way. The Golden Gate, or also known as the Eastern Gate, uh, it was sealed up. Now, those are not the original walls that Jesus would have seen, but the same locations of the gates that Jesus would have seen. Uh, this was sealed up in, I think, the 13th century or so. You see, the, you see how the gates are blocked? No entrance. No going in, no coming out. You see all those in front of the gates? Those are, uh, those are graves. Those are Arab Muslim graves. Why would they put it right there? In Ezekiel chapter 44, 43 and 44, Ezekiel prophesies about the eastern gate. And it's revealed, the gate shall be sealed, for the Lord of glory has passed through it. Right? Jesus walked in and out of that gate. And no one shall pass through it again 
until the prince, the Messiah prince comes. And he shall pass through the gate. And the glory of the Lord, verse chapter 44, will pass through the eastern gate. So Jesus is going through there at some point. <laughs> that's, that's coming. But I want you to think for a moment, if you're in the Garden of Gethsemane and you're Jesus, I know we can't put ourselves fully in his shoes. I'm just, just bear with me. This is how my mind works. Jesus is looking one way, and there's Mount Calvary with a brutal instrument of death that he will suffer not only physical death, but carry the weight of the sins upon his shoulder of the world. He turns his head, and he looks at the gate. He knows the prophecy. If I, get, I could get up, I could cross that valley, I could go through that gate, and I could be the king. I could bypass the cross and go straight to the crown. Father, if there's any way this cup could pass from me, nevertheless, not, not my will, but thine be done. And we're told here in Hebrews that he cried out to, the, to him who could save him from death, and he was heard. When Jesus cried out, he was heard. Say, Josh, what do you mean he was heard? He still went to the cross. When, when Jesus cried out in the garden, the Father said, it's the cross. And Jesus got up from that garden, and without another tear, full resolve, courage, Unwavering love, he went to that cross. And he went to that cross so that when he comes back for the crown, you and I can join him. Jesus, in that moment, embraced the will of God, but it was in suffering. And when I look at this, it teaches me something very powerful because we, we, we read in verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand when it says that the son learned obedience. It's not like humans learning obedience, right? Humans have to learn obedience because we're naturally disobedient. You don't have to teach your kids to lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. You don't have to teach your kids to disobey. You have to teach them to obey. That's not what he's talking about here. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was always obedient. But learning here is in the sense of experiencing. Jesus was all-knowing, and yet he emptied himself of certain rights and privileges in order to take on the human experience. True or false, Jesus learned how to walk. You think he just came out on Christmas and was like running around, hey, I'm God, you know? Jesus learned how to read. Yeah, he didn't just walk in the temple one day and say, hand me that scroll right there. This is about me. Let me just... Someone taught him. Jesus learned how to swing a hammer. Jesus took on the full human experience of learning. 
Jesus also willingly accepted what it meant to learn obedience through suffering. Why? Because he was disobedient? No, no, no. He learned obedience through suffering because we are disobedient. Josh, what's the correlation? God knew, Jesus knew, that he would overcome the temptation to give up. That he would be obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that suffering, when we suffer, not by raise of hands, in your own heart, how many times have you been tempted through suffering to give up on God? When we suffer, our tendency is to be tempted towards disobedience. When we suffer, we make deals with God. God, if you take me out of this, I'll give you my life forever. God, if you do this, and we start dealing with God, do it my way, Lord. And when Jesus was in the position of greatest angst, greatest distress, greatest pain, greatest sorrow, greatest discomfort, he remained obedient through the suffering so that when we are tempted to disobedience through our suffering, we can look at Jesus as our example. If he was obedient through suffering, then I can be obedient through suffering. And this is a hard truth to bring up. I, 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 I don't want to say it because I don't like it to be true, but it is. That sometimes when we are on our knees, vehemently crying out to God, praying, God, get me out of this situation, praying, God, take this weight from me, praying, God, heal me from this sickness, and God's answer to us is go through the suffering His temporary answer of no is always leading to a greater eternal answer of yes. Jesus was answered. God answered him. That moment, it's the cross. And then it's the grave. And then it's victory over death. And then it's the throne. And then it is the highest place of authority that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The answer to Jesus' request That death would pass was answered yes. But it was not answered yes by escaping the cross. It was answered yes by going through it obediently. And sometimes God's answer of yes to us is when we go through suffering obediently. And we trust that his outcome is better. That he knows more. Finally, in number five, the ministry of Jesus as high priest is marked by completion. Verses nine through 11, excuse me, nine and 10. And having been perfected, that's not moral perfection, by the way. It's not saying Jesus was imperfect and he became perfect. The word means to be complete. That he completed God's will for him. That he completed every righteous requirement of the law. Having been perfected, perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What I see here is that Jesus always finishes what he started. He finishes what he started. He has become the author of our salvation for all those who, notice, obey him. The gospel is not just something we believe mentally, it's something we obey by faith. And that faith brings us into right standing with God. Would you like to be, would you like Jesus to be the author of your salvation? The author of your story? Do you want Jesus to take your story of tragedy and turn it into one of victory? 
Do you want to go from a horrific beginning to a triumphant end? Jesus is willing. He's capable. He's eager. But the story will not begin in your life until you come into obedience to his gospel. You trust him by faith for the salvation and the forgiveness of your sins. And then for the rest of the chapter, Paul puts in what I would call a parenthetical insert. He's, he's listening to himself talk, Paul. He said, man, I'm talking about Melchizedek and high priests and I'm losing, he already knows, I'm losing my audience. So he says about Melchizedek, verse 11, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. <laughs> so Paul has, it's funny to me, Paul has this moment of hesitation. He's talking about Melchizedek and then all of a sudden he's like, I don't know if they're going to be able to receive what I have to tell them. Now, that doesn't stop him. He's going to do it anyway. But notice the rebuke he offers. He says, you might not be able to receive it because you've become dull of hearing. Now, let me be clear. There are times when the reception of God's word is due to dull preaching. A.T. Robertson once said, one of the proofs for the inspiration of the Bible is that it has withstood so much poor preaching. <laughs> no doubt some of you had, you've had to endure that from, from Sunday to Sunday. But for the Hebrew audience, Paul is about to say, it's not dull material. It's not dull preaching. The problem you have is that you are dull of hearing. The word dull means sluggish in the ears. I love the picture of that. Slow to hear, slow to receive God's word. In other words, the Hebrews didn't lack in-depth teaching or good teachers. They lacked open ears and receptive hearts to God's word. Their refusal to eat the feast of God's word that was on the table before them stunted their spiritual growth in the things of God. Reminds me of the pastor that was once asked if they needed a deaf ministry for his church, and he responded, a deaf ministry? I think our entire church needs a deaf ministry because they never seem to be listening to anything I ever tell them. I'm not, I'm not talking about you, don't worry. I'm talking about people in general. Look what he says. For though by this time some of you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, that, that is an infant, a baby, spiritually. Apparently, Paul's audience should have, have, by the resources they had available to them, been spiritual giants. Instead, they were old spiritual babies. They were the kind of Christians who have been Christians for years, but still can't seem to explain John 3.16 to their neighbor. They're a member of that church. Their parents were a member of that church. They were baptized into that church. They've served on the board of that church, but they've never lifted a finger to serve. They've never reached out to their neighbors or a lost soul to share the gospel. They've never taken it all upon themselves to embark on more in-depth study of their faith and the things of God. They have every resource available to them. They should have learned by now to digest biblical steak dinners, and instead, 
They want to be spiritually maintained by the same one-liners they've been hearing since they were saved. Their itching ears are sluggish towards the truth, but quick to latch on to anything that meets their temporal and carnal desires. And as a result of a steady diet of baby's milk instead of solid food, Paul says here they are unskilled in using the word of God in their lives. Do you know it's possible to go under the title of Christian and go to a church your whole life and still not know how to use God's word in any practical or applicable way to what you're going through, the decisions you're making, what you're facing? Let me say this. I, like Paul, didn't bring this up to condemn or guilt others. I myself am frequently guilty of not being where I need to be with the Lord. But here's the thing about spiritual diets. It's never too late to start one. We need to look in the mirror. You know, you hear a lot, well, I'm just not being fed at that church, and I'm not really connecting. And some of that is due to the fact that we have watered down God's word a lot in our society today. We have taken out the hard stuff to make it more palatable to the general audience. But you know what? Let's not dismiss the fact that maybe part of it is that our ears are still full of stuff that that when God's word speaks, we just really don't want to listen. Verse 14, he concludes, but solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He's saying maturity comes through a steady diet and consistent exercise in the things of God. Not only is spiritual maturity possible for the believer, it is expected for the believer. But the meat belongs to those who are mature. And how does one become mature? By exercising their senses to discern good and evil. In other words, the application of God's word causes growth. I'll put it like this. God's word must not only be supplied, it must be applied for spiritual maturity to happen in the life of a believer. You can look at the treadmill and that weight machine in the gym all you want. You can stand next to it in your yoga pants and your muscle t-shirt. You can turn on the exercise video and get the music pumping. But at the end of the day, if you stand next to it eating Twinkies, it's not going to do you a lot of good. Twinkies are really good, too. That's my weakness, Twinkies. But listen, church, and I'll close with this. Every time we learn a spiritual truth that's not practically implemented into our lives, we contribute to our own spiritual atrophy. James put it in the terms of do not be hearers of the word only, but doers, not deceiving yourselves. If we refuse to exercise the muscles of our faith, They'll never grow into what God intended them to be. So we need to learn how to feast on the deep things of God. And, and I, I say that because over the next five chapters especially, um, 
we haven't gone deep yet, just so you know. He is, he is about to go deep. And he's saying, it's time to get prepared to eat the meat of God's word. But for the picture today, we close with this thought of Jesus being our high priest forever. He's gone into the holy of holies, the holiest place in heaven. He has tore the veil of the temple. He has sprinkled his own blood on the altar of sacrifice, that once and for all sacrifice for all the sins of mankind to all those who would trust in him. And as our high priest, he is compassionate. He is not waiting to get angry at us, but he deals with us gently. He is perfect, that he has completed and succeeded where we have failed, that he is a priest forever, the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that he has completed what he started and that he is chosen by God in the role of his priesthood. And that is a tremendous comfort for all of us that we have someone in Jesus representing us before God, not in our own righteousness, but in his righteousness. And that is the core of the gospel. There's nothing you can do to add to it or take away from it. If you don't believe it today, I invite you into faith in Christ. If you do believe it today, I encourage you, continue to grow in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to, to partake of communion together this morning, we're going to have the ushers come forward and bring the communion elements. If you just get this from uh, the usher and hold on to it, that'd be great. Lord, we want to remember you today to take a moment to humble ourselves before you, to examine our hearts before you. As we remember your sacrifice, And in that great press of God and the Garden of Gethsemane, you willingly offered your body and your blood as a sacrifice for sin. You resolved yourself to obedience through suffering. And you overcame. We bless you and give you all the glory and honor, Lord, this morning. We thank you for your goodness. So we just sing a chorus of a song together. I want to take a moment for us to literally enter in to the Holy of Holies through and by the blood of Jesus to that place of communion with God. Let him examine your hearts. If you need to lay something at Jesus' feet, if you need to confess a sin, if you need to bring something to the cross, now is the time. Don't take it out of this room with you. As we prepare our hearts to take communion, let's just sing a chorus together.
As we come to the Lord's table, I want to ask you that if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, uh, this communion, these communion elements are just for the believer. That's not to be exclusive. That's because this represents something to us. It's not religious. It's relationship. That Jesus Christ gave his life for me. He died on the cross for me. The, 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 the bread, if you can call it that, um, represents the fact that Jesus' body was broken that mine could be restored. And the blood that was shed was that the stain of my sin, though it be like scarlet, it could be made as white as snow. And actually, as much as I don't really like these little things, um, I actually kind of do like them because it's, it's bittersweet. Eating this thing is not the most pleasant experience. But the death of Christ was bitter. He bore the cup of wrath. But he also delivers the cup of salvation. It is sobering and it is joyful all at the same time. So we honor you, Jesus, today as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us that we could be forever with you. We bless you, God. Come dwell with us. Be our God, our King, our Lord, our Savior, the one who leads us and guides us, our friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake of the elements. I'll stand and uh, I want to go out singing the last verse of this song and the chorus we serve a victorious savior amen may you experience and walk in his victory and diffuse the fragrance of his goodness and gospel wherever you go this week God bless you as we go out with this song
church go in peace